Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... I kind of think mixed martial arts, the UFC specifically, is really America's sport because it's almost a perfect microcosm what happens to our athletes. And MMA is what's happened to American workers. John Nash on how the business of mixed martial arts explains the U.S. economy. So, as you might have guessed by now, today's episode is quite different from past episodes. John Nash is a journalist who writes about the finances and the business of the sport of mixed martial arts. He writes for an online news site called Bloody Elbow, and he's also working on a book about this. And I happen to be a fan of mixed martial arts, or MMA as it's called, for almost two decades now. And I've been talking to John for years about something fascinating that we both noticed about it. But before I tell you what that is, here's a super quick primer for listeners who don't know anything about MMA, for listeners who don't share my own specific niche hobbies. It is exactly what its name sounds like. It is basically all the martial arts allowed in one fight. So things like boxing, kickboxing, karate, Muay Thai, Taekwondo, and also the martial arts that involve takedowns and grappling on the ground, like wrestling and jujitsu. You're allowed to use any of them. And you can win a fight in a few different ways. One is you can simply knock the other person out, so it's quite similar to boxing in that sense. Or in MMA, you can also get them in a painful grappling hold that puts pressure on their joints or on their neck, and then the other person submits by tapping their hands on your body or on the floor. Or if neither of those things happens, then judges decide who won. And here's what John and I have noticed about the business side of the sport of MMA. If you look at some of the big and mostly troubling economic trends in the overall U.S. economy from the last three or four decades, MMA captures a kind of stunning number of them. I mean, check out this list for a minute. Rising income and wealth inequality. The number of economic sectors where just a few companies have come to dominate, sometimes because they bought out their competition. The declining share of the money that companies make that goes to workers the decline of unions, the gig economy, the lack of bargaining power that workers have when they negotiate wages with their companies, and how those companies sometimes use their power to engage in anti-competitive behavior that keeps their workers from leaving to go to other companies. Well, the sport of MMA somehow captures elements of all of these and some other ones too. And I want to be clear— The causes behind all these big economic trends are hotly debated by economists, and so is the importance of each of these trends, also hotly debated. What the sport of MMA captures, though, is a fringy, extreme version of all of them, a kind of cautionary tale of what happens if some of these trends are allowed to go too far. And by the way, MMA does also capture some of the good things about the U.S. economy, and John and I talk about those too. It's just a fascinating prism through which to understand the economy. One final simple definition you should know before we start the show. You are going to hear us referring to the UFC. That stands for Ultimate Fighting Championship. And the UFC is the biggest promotion in the sport. And what that means is that it's the biggest company that signs fighters to contracts to fight for it. And it hosts the fights and gets paid the money when you pay to watch a night of fights. So either on pay-per-view or as part of a live audience. 
Don't worry, by the way, all you have to know about the acronyms I'm throwing at you here is that MMA is the sport of mixed martial arts, and the UFC is the dominant company in the sport. And as a little treat for those of you who are MMA fans and new listeners to the podcast, stick around until after the credits, where John and I are going to give our predictions for UFC 269, the upcoming night of MMA fights on December 11th. And now, my chat with John Nash. Here it is. John, welcome to the new bazaar. Well, thanks for having me on. Big fan, as you know. Awesome. Thank you. Well, here's where I think we should start, which is with an origin story. I think we should tell something about the origins of mixed martial arts itself, because what's interesting to me is that the sport, I mean, like the modern version of the sport, really started in the U.S. in 1993 with the first UFC event. And what's interesting to me specifically is that it's not intuitively obvious that it should have started here in the U.S. I mean, the U.S. does not have, like, its own native martial art that's become globally popular. You know, karate's from Japan, taekwondo's Korean, there's Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and so on. And yet, the U.S. is the place where MMA became popular by combining all those different martial arts. It's kind of like we imported all these different ingredients, and threw them into a blender, and then out came this new thing which has now been exported back out to the rest of the world. So we can already see how globalization has played a role. But I want you to take us back even further than 1993. What are the earlier origins of MMA? Because I know that the U.S. definitely is not the first place where different martial arts started competing against each other. Well, it's, it's, what's interesting is mixed martial arts has actually existed for, you know, uh, the current form probably over 100 years. And then we can go back to, you know, ancient Greece had pancreation, which had a whole economy with it, too. The athletes were paid. They had games they'd go to. They'd make they get paid in oil and stuff. So it's a fascinating. They even had guilds back then. So there was an economy back then for it. It disappeared. But about 100 years ago, when Judicas from Japan came to America, they started competing with catch wrestlers in boxing. And, and basically what we see now happen then and then back then, what they called all-in fighting became our fake professional wrestling. And then later, we, we, we jump ahead. Japan and Brazil were still having these kind of real fights, uh, real anything-go matches. But only when it comes back to America in 93 with the original Ultimate Fighting Championship. One thing America is good at is marketing and selling. And so they took this thing that's been existing for a while and suddenly put we put a, a name on it, a logo, a brand, a marketing campaign, and we can start selling it to everybody. And I think that's what that's what America did. Okay, and what what was the original idea behind that first UFC event, the one in 1993? Well, the original idea was basically taking Val Tudo, which was what was a, a fighting style in Brazil called Anything Goes, where which is basically MMA. People just beating the crud out of each other to prove who's the better fighter. A family known as the Gracie family, who are experts in Valley Tudo, came to America, and a promoter, Art Davies, decided to put this on the air and build a tournament around it, just a spectacle of all these different martial arts competing to show who's the best martial art. So it was a spectacle that they knew they could sell the audience, why the Gracie family knew that they could win it, and it'd be great marketing for their martial art. And so they got uh, SEG, uh, a pay-per-view provider entertainment company that does concerts involved. They've got uh, John Milius, the director, to help design the cage. So they have this iconic eight-sided octagon cage. And they put all these pieces together, invited the wackiest collection of martial artists ever, and put on a spectacle. And from that, 
that basically just a showcase for Gracie Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it launched what eventually became the sport of UFC mixed martial arts in America. Yeah, that's fascinating. In other words, America, you're right, does have this genius for for marketing. uh, And it also has a talent for spectacle itself, for putting on these spectacles. I think there's a reason that the UFC became so popular in Las Vegas, which already had the sort of accumulated skill set of putting on huge, extravagant live events, events that could be telecast all around the country and all around the world, but they're based there. And so you have all these people who know how to do this. Well, yeah, that's where it really takes off. I mean, you and it's the, you know, it's the old American story, the melting pot. You have a guy from Brazil that as a martial art comes to America they build a program around it. And so then the Americans, for some reason, we can always package stuff that it's much more marketable to other countries. So you might have something from someplace, but when you come to America, now we can start selling it to the rest of the world. And we also had a long tradition of, of making huge boxing spectacles. So you have the talent already here that understands how to sell boxing and pro wrestling. Let's not, it's, there's a huge link between pro wrestling and mixed martial arts. You have those two ingredients come together in Vegas with some rich brothers. The Fertitas eventually take over the company, and they have the the knowledge of boxing. It's the perfect formula to start selling this new new morally questionable sport. (laughs) Yeah. You know, what's also kind of interesting about this is that it is of a piece with not just professional wrestling, as you mentioned, which also is based on spectacle, but it's also just part of the larger arts and entertainment sector of the U.S. economy, which is deeply influential, not just throughout the country, of course, but all around the world. I mean, cultural exporting is something that the U.S. is known for. And the arts and entertainment sector, for example, was growing at a faster pace than the rest of the overall economy at least in the years before the pandemic. And I don't think that's a surprise that in an era when U.S. arts and entertainment can be sold not just to American consumers, but all across the world very easily, that a sport that also has, uh, it's at least its modern business origins in the U.S. can become more popular because it can reach so many people all across the world. And I think it's fair to say now that the UFC is a fully globalized sport. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, I think the number of athletes in the UFC, over 50% are from outside the United States. It's, it's broadcast in countries all across basically every continent besides Antarctica. Uh, so it's, it's a global sport. Okay. Well, already we can see how MMA, at least in its early years, the UFC captured some of the good things about the U.S. economy, depending on your point of view. You know, it had global appeal. It combined elements of things from all these different places to create like this one cool new thing. It took advantage of U.S. talent and experience in marketing and in sales and in hosting big events, these big spectacles. And I want to turn now to how the business itself went. So, again, the first UFC event was in 1993 in Denver, Colorado. Uh, Take us through roughly that first decade after that event. So into the early 2000s, when the UFC was bought by Frank and Lorenzo Fertitta, these two brothers who brought with them a guy named Dana White, who is actually still the president of the UFC to this day. And... They together launched a reality show, I remember, called The Ultimate Fighter 
that basically gets a bunch of fighters to live in houses together while they also compete against each other. They fight each other to get contracts to fight in the UFC. So, yeah, take us through that first decade, uh, how the UFC did as a business. Well, what's interesting is the UFC was very successful in its early days, uh, the early 90s with the original owners, SCG. And then they ran into trouble because their marketing campaign was actually too creative and too successful and advertising it as having no rules. Even though they started introducing rules, it, it basically opened up the eyes or brought the attention of people like John McCain, who, who blocked it from pay-per-view. And that ended up being the death knell of the company. They couldn't survive without pay-per-view. So now enters Zufa, which is the Fertitta brothers and Dana White. What they do is they start a whole rebranding to basically make it look like they're now looking for regulations and rules, even though those already existed. But they want to rebrand it that they're a new company being much safer than the previous company. And they start spending tons of money on advertising. And it's not successful at all. They lose millions their first few years. What their big success is, is they finally do something that the SCG couldn't, is they get a channel to put on a show, a reality show. And so they find a way to advertise this, mass market it with the Ultimate Fighter, and they put it immediately after WWE. I think that wasn't WWF anymore. I think it was WWE at that time, pro wrestling. Professional wrestling, essentially, yeah. And it's on Spike TV, I believe, is the channel, right? Spike TV, and it's the perfect moment because – you have pro wrestling is very popular, but now you have this show that is, is similar to pro wrestling, but real right after it and can draw that audience. And at that moment, the pay-per-view sales, the ratings, everything just takes off. And with that flush, now flush with cash, they do what a lot of businesses do. They go, okay, we're successful. Now let's start putting a moat around us that no one else can follow our path to success. And they start buying up the com- competitors, the competition, and start tying the fighters into contracts that make it harder to leave the, the promotion. Yeah, we're going to get to all that. I want to focus on a couple of things first, though. It was in the 2000s, I think it's fair to say, that the UFC started getting some of its first big-time mainstream stars, right? Partly because of that marketing push. Would you say that's accurate? People like Chuck Liddell with the big mohawk, who sort of became recognizable outside the world of mixed martial arts and the UFC specifically, that these are people who could go on like late night talk shows and everybody would be like, oh, that's who they are. How important was that? I think that's immensely important. If you look at the success of the UFC, you start looking at their pay-per-view numbers, like what events really did well and what events propelled them to another level that the other events were, you know, following it, started doing better. It's all based on, you can look at specific fighters did it. Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, Chuck Liddell or Tito Ortiz versus Randy Couture. Those guys and a few others, they really propelled the industry. It was built on the back of a select few fighters in the early years. And so the star power, the, the charisma of those guys, probably much more than even the the, the UFC promotion itself was the, the main driving force for the early years. Yeah, so there's the importance of marketing and promotion, the importance of television, the importance of superstars, the globalization of these superstars or the global appeal of these superstars. And you had something that you just alluded to a second ago, which is that the UFC started buying up other promotions that also held mixed martial arts events so that it could become the dominant player. Take us through why this is important, because it was in the 2000s, right around this time, that there was a huge M&A boom of companies buying other companies and the concern from economists that it meant that 
some specific companies were dominating their sector in a way that, you know, would cause them to worry because what you want is a big landscape of competition. You want a lot of firms competing with each other. The UFC kind of went the other route, which is that it tried to stifle the competition, not by beating it, but by buying it out. Exactly. I mean, we, we saw this trend starting, you know, I, I guess the 2000s specifically where there's sort of being concentration markets. The UFC was even more dramatic than anything we saw anywhere else. In the early 2000s, while the UFC was struggling, there was a promotion in Japan called Pride FC, and they were massive. They would sell out 50, 60,000 seat stadiums in Japan. They were the biggest promotion MMA. But then they ran into trouble around 2006. Just as the UFC was taking off, they got into a kind of a scandal in Japan involving organized crime, and they lost their television deal and started struggling. So the UFC came in and bought them. And the reason the UFC would argue they bought them is because they liked the brand and they wanted the fighters. But from the antitrust lawsuit, which I'm sure we'll discuss later, there was an email that got released that showed that from an outside attorney representing the UFC saying that the reason that we are buying Pride is to prevent someone else from buying the, from acquiring the company. And so Pride, the, the biggest rival to the UFC at this time, actually the biggest MMA promotion, is now bought up by the UFC and it's closed and the fighters from Pride are acquired. And so you see that the that happens and then it continues to happen. Later, there's another promotion called Strike Force. It's starting to grow. It, it gets a deal with Showtime and CBS and starts getting some national broadcasts and signs a lot of very top fighters. And they ha end up having some financial problems. The UFC, instead of letting them go out of business and someone else potentially acquiring them or selling to someone else, they go in and buy the, the promotion and then merge that promotion with their own along with the fighters. And so you see this this concentration of the market where the UFC goes from having something like 25 to 30% of all the top 10 fighters to having 80, 85% of the top 10 fighters now, they now have something like 90% of the MMA market. That, that's astonishing. Can you just explain that number? They, they make 90% of all the money that's spent on the sport of mixed martial arts in the country goes to UFC events and UFC sales of different things, right? So can you just kind of take us through that number and what it means? Yeah, the UFC's market shares, for every dollar spent in the United States, North America, 90 on MMA, 90 cents of that's going to the UFC. But according to the antitrust lawsuit, it's plausible that 90% of all mixed martial arts globally goes to the UFC, that they are so big compared to every other promotion. And I've seen the finances of other promotions. They are microscopic compared to the UFC. In a pure monopolistic scenario, there would be only one player in the game. That's not quite the case in MMA. There are still other promotions, but they have such a paltry share of the money made in MMA that for all intents and purposes, the UFC is the <laughs> monopoly-ish player in MMA. It is the clear-cut rival the fighters that fight for it, that are on contracts to fight for it, are considered the best in the world, and it is a clear position of dominance. I mean, there's sort of no question about that, right? I mean, I, I, every time I bring this up, somebody will say, well, what about Bellator, which is a rival promoter? What about, you know, something else? And I, I sort of say, well, like, <laughs> we're not talking about very much money here. Like, this is a, a sort of a bit player. But the point to make here is that the reason that the other players are bit players is not because the UFC necessarily outcompeted them. It's because it really did consolidate its way into this position of dominance. And 
I just think this is important to mention because there is growing concern. There has been growing concern for a while now that for several decades in a lot of different economic sectors throughout the U.S., there has been increasing concentration just like this and that it can have some really negative consequences for the competitive landscape of the economy, which we know is important. And so I just wanted to mention that there is a parallel between what's happened in the UFC and what's happened in the rest of the U.S. economy. What do you think has been the consequence of the UFC establishing such a dominant role, both for what it's able to do in terms of events and provide for the fans uh, and also for for the fighters themselves that, that fight for it? Well, I mean, it, it's very much like the rest of the economy in the sense that UFC is a pioneer firm. They, we, I should give them a lot of credit for being the first to come up with be very innovative, uh, doing great marketing, great promotional materials to blow up before everybody else. They got on TV. They did all these innovative things to beat everybody else. So they were the first mover. They get the first mover advantage. But what you expect to happen at that point is other companies to try to enter the enter the market to try to compete. And what the UFC did then is, like I said, they built moats. They started buying up the acquiring the rivals. And so not only do they have 90% of the revenue, like I said, they have 85% of the top fighters. So if you're trying to compete with them, the fighters are not available because they're all signed to the UFC. So for fans, it's it's... This is, I guess, goes back to the consumer welfare model. For the fans, it might be superior because you get all the best fighters fighting under one promotion who can basically dictate who fights who. But if you're a fighter, what you're looking at is there's really only one promotion that gets all the money that's theoretically being generated by you, the fighters. You're the product, but they're they're gener- they're getting all the revenue. And so there's only one major promotion you negotiate with, which means your wages are probably suppressed compared to what it would have been like if it's like more like boxing where there's multiple promoters fighting over the pie. Yeah, that, that's a really fascinating point you make about the UFC being a pioneer firm. And so it was a combination of genuinely you know, of genuinely impressive business strategy in its early years, certainly, and also the wave of consolidation. And it's interesting, too, because economists are frequently debating just what it is that accounts for rising concentration of just a few firms dominating a bunch of different sectors of the economy. And one of the more kind of benign causes of this is that a lot of firms just tend to be much more innovative, much more productive than other firms. And so they rise to the top just because they're better at business. And that's combined with the fact that in a global economy where it's easy to sell your products, you know, across the world, and certainly that applies to the UFC where it's easy to, you know, it's easy to put something on TV, not just in the US, but in Australia, in China, in Japan, it's not hard. Uh, You know, you can rise to the top just by scaling very, very quickly. And in the case of the UFC, there was some of that. And there was also the more potentially harmful uh, cause of it, which is the consolidation approach of buying up your rivals instead of beating them as a business practice. And it's interesting to think of the counterfactual here because it seems at least plausible to me that if the UFC had not bought these other rivals, that you might have a more equal landscape, that you might have the UFC still having a dominant share of revenues, maybe even, I don't know, 50 or 60%, but that it would be a little bit more equitable across a few different promotions because Pride and Strike Force were quite popular. People really did watch their fights. And it would be interesting to imagine a scenario where the UFC would at least have to be negotiating with them to put on fights between fighters who were assigned to the UFC and fighters who were assigned to Pride and Strike Force. 
And then at least the revenue share would be a little bit more equally split. What do you think about that counterfactual possibility? What makes MMA interesting is it's it's its own little kind of economic universe where there's certain things that are don't quite go with the typical, you know, economic theories. Like in MMA, there's the idea of a title, a champion. And and what's different about MMA right now is the UFC is the only title that matters. But before, the Pride title, winning the Pride championship was just as prestigious as winning the UFC championship, perhaps even more prestigious for some fighters. So by eliminating Pride, taking off, now you eliminate a potential title that that fighters would want to fight for. And so they, they feel compelled to sign with the UFC if they want to prove that they're the number one fighter in the world. So they have this advantage that you can't really recreate in the in the real world. You can't. No other promotion can suddenly just create a promotion and say, come fight for me because you can be the best in the world. It doesn't work that way because the only title that now exists is the UFC. Strikeforce was something the same, that they were, they were building up momentum and a brand, a title value based on the remnants of pride that had some sort of merit that people are like, yes, they have the best heavyweight in the world. I will want to fight for pride and win the heavyweight championship. But when they were eliminated, the same problem. Now any promoter is starting from scratch. And so they're putting in these barriers to entry, uh, these these hurdles that other future promoters have to compete with that make it much, much harder to ever gain traction. Like Strikeforce was a fraction of what pride was making revenue, but they had the potential to blow up because they had big name fighters and there's some prestige involved with some of the fighters attached to them. Yeah. And so the UFC's dominant position here just kind of naturally gives it a strong negotiating hand when it comes to paying the fighters, because if the fighters don't really have other options for where to go fight, they're going to be forced to pretty much accept whatever contract the UFC offers. But it's an interesting question, John, of how to know whether or not the UFC is basically ripping off its fighters. In other words, whether the UFC is keeping more of the pay-per-view money and the money it gets from ticket sales for itself than it would be able to keep if it had to pay the fighters in like a free market setting where it has to compete with other companies to sign the same fighters. And here we can turn to something called the wage share, which you've written about a lot. So what is the wage share and what does it tell us about whether the UFC is in fact underpaying its fighters? Well, the wage share is all the revenue that is made off the sport for, from viewers, you know, the tickets, the television revenue, the merchandise sponsors, that goes into a pile. And then a, a percentage that's guaranteed to the athletes because it's assumed that the people are watching the sport because of those athletes. So the athletes can negotiate a large chunk of that. In, in MMA, UFC revenue is approaching a billion dollars a year. And the fighters who I think all of us assume are the main draw, people are watching the UFC because they want to watch what they think are the best fighters in the world. In the UFC, the wage share is somewhere between 15 and 20%. Of all, so of all the dollars that are spent in the UFC, you know, watching the events, tickets, pay-per-view, all that, only about 15 to 20% goes to the fighters. And I'm sure the UFC would come back and say, well, hey, listen, you know, we want to be a profitable company. And also it costs a lot of money to put on these events. So you can't blame us. You know, this is just how the sport works. And this is, uh, you know, this is a reasonable amount to go to the fighters, to which the response, I think, is to compare the wage share that goes to the fighters in the UFC to what the athletes make in other sports. So how does it compare? Pretty bad. <laughs> Very okay. bad. If you go if you go to the collective bargain, we see with the other sports, Major League Baseball, NFL, NBA, all the other Major League sports, 
They're getting anywhere from 40 to 50% of the revenue in each of those sports. As opposed so, to the 15 to 20% that the UFC yes. fighters get. Yeah. yeah, and if you want to compare it to boxing, a similar sport, you know, two guys get into a ring or cage and fight. Boxing, it's not uncommon for the athletes there to get 60, 70, even 80% of the revenue from the event. Wow. I mean, we're talking about, you know, quintupling or at least quadrupling the share of the money spent on the sport that goes to boxers versus UFC fighters. That seems to me like quite an indictment of the way that the UFC takes advantage of its fighters. And the follow-up to that is, how can they get away with it? In other words, why is it that the fighters can't respond and say, this is ridiculous, we demand a higher share of the money spent in the sport come to us so that we can at least be competitive with other sports and so that we can make what we would consider to be you know, a proper wage, a market-based wage. Well, I would argue the reason is because the fighters, unlike other athletes who are kind of in a unique sp- space in the uh, American worker landscape, fighters are part of the working class in America. They don't have leverage. They're dealing with a single entity monopoly. So athletes can only really sell their wares to, if you're a pro football player, only the NFL is going to pay you a lot to play pro football. But the difference is there's multiple teams in pro football. And so if they're with free agency and stuff, if one team won't pay you what you want, you can go to another team, which will drive up the cost of your labor. And UFC, it's one owner. And on top of that, they're independent contractors. And independent contractors cannot collectively bargain. They can't form a union to collectively bargain. The and fighters so they, are independent contractors is what you're saying here. In exactly. Words, the, the fighters are not actually employees of the UFC. They are basically part of the gig economy. They're, con- yeah, they're on contract, they're, right. They're they're very much gig workers. If, it's, uh, if your Uber driver can't come and pick you up in time, they'll find someone else to do it. And if he wants more money to pick up someone, they'll find someone else who needs the money right now. UFC and MMA, the whole sport is very similar. If a fighter won't take a fight for the amount they're offering, they can easily find someone else. There's an endless supply of replaceable fighter. They're all replaceable. Yeah, let, let's go through some of what happens in UFC contracts. In other words, in the negotiating situation between the UFC and the fighters, what are some of the provisions that the UFC essentially forces on the fighters? Well, the UFC contracts, they, they're basically contracts of adhesion. They offer you a contract, and that's the only contract they're going to offer. Uh, up until about 2017, identical contract year after year. What it is is, if it's, it could be a very short contract, four fights when you start off. But as you move up the ranks and as you get closer to a title, they might tell you, here's a new contract for 10 fights. And if you don't sign that 10-fight contract, you're not going to get the title shot. And so you have to sign a long-term contract just to get a chance to fight for the title or get a chance to fight for a chance to fight for the title, which is where you'd get your prestige and, and you'd improve your, your value to yourself because you'd become more well-known to fans. So they have that leverage. On top of that, the contract also allows tolling provisions. So if you turn down a fight for whatever reason, they can extend the contract six months. And according to what various fighters and managers have told me and what you hear from the, what we found from the disclosure in the antitrust lawsuit, they're very creative in ways to extend that contract. Just very recently, the current heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou, who's in something of a contract negotiations uh, with the UFC, he, he reported that 
he was offered a contract, a fight immediately after his last fight, but he couldn't accept it because he had to leave the country to renew his visa. And because he couldn't renew his visa, he couldn't accept the fight. And so the UFC could extend the fight six months. So he, there's no chance he could make that fight, yet they could still offer it. And we have reports in the past doing it again and again, extending the contracts, basically almost making perpetual if they want. Finally, if you hold the title at the end of the contract, they have something called the Champions Clause, where they can add an additional three fights to the end of the contract. And so you can fight out the contract, but then you have three additional fights. Now, this might not sound like a lot, but fighters' careers are very short. This is not a 20-year career like a, like a teacher or something. This is a, a, a career of a few years. And so if the, the UFC can extend the, the time that you're at your most valuable and prevent you from negotiating during that, they can really limit what you can ask for. Because by the time that contract runs out, you might be finished at your best years and no longer can compete at the top level to even ask for a better deal. Yeah, I want to be clear about something. These are all tactics that the UFC uses to prevent a fighter from leaving, essentially. In other words, not giving a fighter a chance to fight for the title unless he or she signs a new, longer-term contract, putting in place these provisions that allow the UFC to keep extending the amount of time that a fighter is contracted to the UFC. These are tactics that make it really hard for a fighter to ever leave and for a rival organization to ever bid for the services of a fighter. Because again, the UFC can just extend the amount of time before a fighter gets their last fight on their current contract. Exactly. I mean, eventually you'll get that fight, but it might be a year, 18 months after you thought you'd get it. And that's a big chunk of your career. And who's going to sit out a year, a year and a half, potentially longer if you have, let's say they do it with two fights left and they want to stretch out even as long as possible. Who's going to sit out that long in their career and not earn and then and then leave the UFC after their last fight? That it, There's a, just a lot of leverage. I will say there's been some good news. Well, first I should say basically all promoters do this, but the UFC is the industry leader. And so is this just the nature of the business or is everybody following what the industry leader is doing? Because if the UFC had a different type of contract, I'm pretty sure the other promotions couldn't implement something that's more draconian than what they have. But I will say, recently, I've seen reports, I've actually looked at contracts. Pretty logical, this is a result of the antitrust lawsuit. The UFC contracts are a lot less restrictive today than they were just a few years ago. Yeah, John, let me take a shot at explaining this antitrust lawsuit as briefly as I can, because we've referenced it a couple of times now, and, and I do think it is important. In fact, some of what we know now about the UFC's finances and how little it pays the fighters, we actually know precisely because that information came out as part of the legal proceedings for this lawsuit. So this lawsuit is still making its way through the courts, but basically what's happened is that a group of former UFC fighters is alleging that the UFC has engaged in anti-competitive behavior. And specifically, the lawsuit includes the idea that the UFC has monopsony power, which is kind of an unfamiliar concept, but a monopsony is basically when one company is the only employer in a sector of the economy, or, or when it's by far the biggest employer. So that effectively, workers don't have many other options for where they can work. And in fact, this is something that economists are increasingly studying about the U.S. economy itself, whether or not there are some sectors of the economy where some companies have monopsony power. And the lawsuit says that the UFC has used this power to prevent competition 
in the sport of MMA and to hold down the money that it pays fighters so that it can keep more of the money for itself, for profits. And John, what you're saying here is that possibly because of the lawsuit and the attention that it's brought to the UFC's contracts, some of those contracts have recently become less restrictive than they used to be for the fighters. And I also want to ask a simple question here. We've talked about how small the share of money that's made in the sport goes to the fighters, but in actual dollar terms, we haven't actually talked about how much money UFC fighters make. So let's start with that. How much money do UFC fighters earn for fighting? Well, it it, it all depends. If you're a beginning fighter, uh, a fighter that first enters the UFC, you're going to get a 12 and 12 contract which means you get $12,000 to show up for the fight. And if you win, you get an additional $12,000. But I should also highlight that's gross. That's not net. Out of that money you win, you if you win or not, out of that portion of money, you have to pay for your manager, your training, and the equipment supplies you need because you're an independent contractor. So a huge chunk of that money could disappear. Now, the average fighter, the tip, I should say, the median fighter earns much more than that. Uh, last I saw, it, probably in the neighborhood of 50 and 50. In other words, 50000 to show, 50000 to win. So a lot of fans see that and say, oh, he fought twice here, and if he wins both, he could win $200,000. But they don't all win every fight. And on top of that, not every fighter can fight two times a year. The average fighter in the UFC only fights 1.8 times a year because of injuries and other problems and because the UFC's tolling provisions allow them to push the fight back so they don't have to put them all in that one year. And again, that's gross, not net. So if he, even if he earned $150,000 one year, let's say, a big chunk of that's going to trainers, everything else. So he might walk pre-tax away from that fight with ninety dollars to $100,000. And that money has to make up for the last 10, 20 years he's dedicated to get to this spot of being one of the top best fighters in the world fighting in the UFC. And that's one of the best fighters in the world fighting for the UFC. There's a lot of fighters who just like make it onto the early bouts known as the prelims of a big fight they might lose the fight. They might just get their $12,000 to show up. And they might only have two fights like that in a year. You know, you actually could walk away from, you know, a year spent as a UFC fighter making, I don't know, somewhere between twenty dollars and $40,000, depending on how well you do, how well you fight. You know, and this is, this is a sport that's violent, that's tough, that requires you to pay for your own training, your own manager that forces you to pay also for, you know, the kind for your own health insurance outside of stuff that's related to fighting because you're not again an employee with full benefits. This is not a very lucrative sport for fighters who just make it into the UFC but aren't actually, you know, in the sort of top 10, top 15, top 20 type guys. Is that right? Very much so. It's not lucrative, but for those from that fighter's perspective, it's a lot more lucrative being in the UFC than being outside the UFC. For beginning fighters, for guys at that level, when they're outside the UFC, they make much less than that twelve thousand to show, twelve thousand to win. There's almost no money on the regional scene before you get. It's like the minor league baseball. Those guys are making maybe a thousand to show, a thousand to win, and so it's a huge bump up to get into the UFC. Yeah, but once you get there. You're still not really making enough to live off of if you're not somebody who actually cracks like the top five, top 10. That's what it sounds like to me. Like these guys are there, but there's still stories of guys taking like second jobs and all that kind of thing. You know what I mean? 
Oh yeah, yeah. It's definitely that's it's for the UFC. It's for MMA and whole the top percent, just like boxing, the top few percent make all the money. But unlike boxing, the t- even why the top few percent in MMA make a lot of money, they don't make anything close to what the boxers make. And so there's kind of a fighter's arc we chart for fighters. You start out. You're just happy to get in the UFC at first because I made the UFC. I'm, I'm going to make it big. And then you start just say, if I keep winning, they'll reward me. I'll get rewarded if I keep winning. And so you keep fighting and you keep your head down. And it's only when you start to see the end of your career approach, you're like, man, man I never made as much as I thought I should have made. And yeah. at that point, it's too late to go back and start asking for more. Yeah, this happens all the time, by the way. You see a lot of fighters whose careers will get to a more mature stage and they'll start saying exactly that, that when they were young in their early 20s and they were up and coming fighters, they thought, well, I've got time to like establish myself and then later I'll make the big money fights. And then 10 years later, they could have had a very good career and they'll start realizing I kind of blew it, that like I needed to have negotiated harder earlier on. But of course, they were never in a very good negotiating position to begin with. But that is a very common sentiment expressed by UFC fighters. Oh, yeah. It's, in fact, it's almost a cliche at this point that yeah. it's only at the end of your career do you hear people speaking up that they thought they deserved more money. I want to tie some of the themes we've just discussed about how the UFC works as a business to some of the things we've seen in the U.S. economy, just to make it a little bit more explicit, because this is, of course, what we promised at the top of the show. So one is that UFC fighters make a very small share of the overall revenues made by the UFC and and in the sport of MMA. And in the U.S. economy, you know, it depends on how you measure it. But in general, workers for the last few decades have been getting a smaller and smaller share of the overall money made by businesses in the U.S., of the total income that's made in the U.S. by businesses, workers have been getting a smaller and smaller share. We talked about how the fighters have uh, essentially no option for unionizing, for collective bargaining. And this also kind of tracks what's happened roughly in the last half century uh, in the U.S., which is that unionization rates have fallen, at least until the last few years. And that's thought to be behind some of the difficulties that workers have in negotiating for a better deal. There's the gig economy. You know, UFC fighters are contractors. They're not employees. And we've seen that in a lot of important sectors of the economy, there's been a kind of fissuring of the workplace where a company that maybe in the past would have had a big workforce that employs everybody in the workforce, you know, including like, I don't know, you know, the janitorial services and the people that essentially clean the building and also people who do like HR stuff and back office stuff and things of that nature. Now they're essentially outsourcing it, that the the economy is essentially broken apart. Right. And this also can put workers in a more difficult position because, again, it makes it hard for all the workers in one firm to bargain for a better deal to come together. Well, now they're all spread out across different firms. Uh, And then finally, you have this sort of superstar economy where, as we've discussed, fighters who aren't great, you know, fighters who make it into the UFC but aren't great have sort of the double whammy of not being able to negotiate for a better deal because the UFC has put itself in this incredibly strong negotiating position, but also because in a superstar economy, you end up with a very small number of people who are like the stars of the sport 
who can command a very high share of money, high share of the amount of money spent in the sport, and everybody else is in a very weak position. And so you essentially don't have like a thriving middle class in the sport. Did I leave anything out? No, that that's that's a good summary. It's uh, I, my argument has been that why you know we used to call America baseball America's pastime, and a lot of people made the argument that really no football was really America's sport. I kind of think mixed martial arts, the UFC specifically, is really America's sport because it's almost a perfect microcosm. What happens to our athletes? And MMA is what's happened to American workers over the last few decades. They're, they're the closest. They, they're much closer to the regular, the typical average guy than any NFL or NBA player is because all the forces that have been affecting the, your typical labor is also affecting them. Yeah, and I think, of, I think of the UFC and specifically the issue of worker power there as a kind of cautionary tale because it's not that all across the U.S. economy – you know, the, the sort of story of how workers bargain for their wages is perfectly mirrored by what's happening in the UFC. I think the UFC is, if anything, a very pathological version of the sort of trends in worker power uh, from the last few decades. In other words, things have been getting worse, and the UFC shows you what happens when one organization can dominate an entire sector? What happens when there is just one employer who really matters? What happens when workers can't bargain together? What happens when the workers don't even work for the place, don't have health insurance? And also, what happens when you're in a superstar economy where a few people, even a few of the workers themselves, can command extremely large salaries? And so you could kind of compare like CEOs at big companies to the really popular fighters in the UFC, they can get paid like enormous, enormous amounts of money because they're the people that, you know, the fans associate the sport with. And everybody else is kind of screwed, partly because like the superstars aren't necessarily always looking out for the workers in the yeah. same way that like CEO pay has become way more many multiples uh, of pay of what you know their average worker gets. We've seen that in the last few decades, and that's kind of similar to what happens in the UFC when you have like some huge superstar, right? Like that—that that seems to be a part of the story as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the UFC. When I say it's a microcosm, it's really it's the most extreme version of all those effects on the workers. It's like, okay, we you're having a problem with concentration in the labor force. Well, the UFC, we're going to dial this up to eleven to show you what what can happen. But yeah, the, with the the top fighters, I mean, I do argue that the top fighters deserve it. In fact, deserve more. That they're they're probably the mo the ones being taken the most advantage of. Because if you think about it, fans generally are paying specifically for that one fighter. And because they're paying for that one fighter, a middleman, the the promoter, gets is taking a gigantic ch chunk of the revenue that the people are paying for that one specific person. But besides that, besides those particular fighters, they're making. It's hard to feel sorry for them because they're still making millions. The problem with the rest of the fighters is no one's paying for a specific fighter. But I do think the fans are paying because they know that the collective sum of all those fighters is the best fighters in the world. That what we're paying to see is the best fighters in the world. And I might not be paying to see the specific fighter, but I'm paying to know that because uh, I know that this group is the best fighters in the world. And so collectively, they have value, a high marginal revenue uh, value, but individually, they have no leverage. Yeah, that's fascinating. In other words, the superstar fighters themselves can at least command like big 
million dollar payouts on a big fight. But at the same time, even they are getting screwed. So they might be making a huge chunk of the money that goes to the fighters. But because the overall chunk of money that goes to the fighters is so depressed, even the superstars are still getting ripped off. Right. Very much so. I mean, if you have an event that sells, if a normal UFC event will sell 100,000 pay-per-views and then a fighter's on the next event and it sells a million pay-per-views, well, you think, well, he added 900,000 pay-per-views. He deserves a very large chunk of that. But then you mm-hmm. look at the amount they got paid and you realize he probably got maybe 10% of that extra revenue that was generated. That, yeah. Uh, I, I, I would argue that that seems a little unbalanced. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, I want to bring up something else that you have pointed out through the years, which is this sort of <laughs> this sort of weird thing where the UFC is very strongly associated not with its best athletes the way other sports are, but with the guy who oversees it, a guy named Dana White, who's essentially like the huckster king of the UFC, like a very flamboyant guy, a very aggressive dude. And he is like the face of the sport. Whereas if you look at basketball, the commissioner of the NBA, you know, the guy who represents the owners, basically a guy named Adam Silver, he's like well-known and everything. But when you think of the NBA, you think of LeBron James, you know, you think of Chris Paul, you think of Giannis Antetokounmpo, right? You don't think of Adam Silver, but the UFC is different. It does have some fighters that are well-known and certainly it has had some fighters who have transcended their fame in the UFC, people like Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey. But actually, the name that's maybe best known, the name that's most affiliated with the UFC is a guy named Dana White, who's just the president of the UFC. Uh, It kind of brings to mind what happens with other companies, right? You know, what happens with, uh, you know, Tesla, where it's like, oh my God, it's Elon Musk, that kind of thing. So how do you think that the UFC essentially mirrors the CEO as cult of personality Uh, in the American economy? Well, it's generally assumed that Dana White was created, as as he is now, based on Vince McMahon, the the owner, president of uh, the uh, WWE professional wrestling. I'm I'm old, so I remember when they were the WWF, so I always have to stutter on that. But (laughs) WWE professional wrestling. So he's a character who appears as part of the promotion of their matches in pro wrestling. You know, he plays basically himself. And a lot of people think that this was intentionally done by the UFC to create their own Vince McMahon. And I think a lot of other companies followed suit. There's an incredible value of having your president, your CEO, some chief executive be the face of the company, be almost a brand ambassador, to be, to be your Mickey Mouse logo in living flesh. And the UFC with that, the one great thing about having Dana White as your face of your company he, if he's your biggest star, you don't have to worry about him getting old, retired, and leaving or losing. You don't have any of those concerns. So he's on every event. He promotes every event. He puts his basically has to put his signature. This is going to be a great fight. They have special shows dedicated to following him around as he cooks meals. Uh, they have a, a show called Dana White's Contenders where fighters come forward and audition in front of him for his chance to fight in the UFC. So the whole thing's built basically around the idea that Dana White is the guy that makes every decision, and him and the UFC are synonymous. In fact, there was an amazing video they produced last year, the UFC, which they've since taken down, where they did this whole uh, whole tribute to Dana White because he was the first person to figure out a way to hold sporting events during COVID when all the naysayers, those evil members of the media, said it couldn't be done. (laughs) 
he uh, took aim in that video at my colleague Stacey Vanek Smith because yeah. we, on the indicator from Planet Money, where I, I was formerly a co-host, did an episode about one of those early events where we just like laid out what was happening and some of the points of skepticism. Because by the way, some people at that event did in fact contract COVID, you know, including one of the expected fighters. So. Uh, yeah, and I was I was on that. Uh, that, I mean, I was on that show. Your episode, I remember that. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I remember. Well, John, I want to ask now about inequality within the sport itself, specifically income inequality between the fighters, like the superstar fighters, and everyone else. I don't know that there's much data on this, or at least I looked around and I couldn't find it. But do you know of anything we can point to that sheds a bit of light on? whether or not the rising income inequality in the U.S. economy overall is also mirrored by income inequality in the UFC? Well, I I don't have specifically for the UFC, I I didn't do this, but I did for MMA in general a study where I looked at the pay income percentiles by reported payouts all across MMA. And, And you see basically what you see in boxing, that the most fighters make very, very little in MMA, and then a, a select few at the very top make very good wages. And so for like for for MMA, I believe that the average purse, the, the overall median for all MMA fighters across North America in 2019 would have been about $2,000 per fight. So of the several thousand fights that took place that year, the average fighter was getting $2,000. But then if you look at the very top percentage, the top, uh, the top decile, top 10%, they were making on average several hundred thousand dollars. They make 30%, in fact, of all revenue, reported payouts, probably higher in reality, went to the top 10% of fighters. And those are the fighters in the UFC. So the UFC fighters are basically, truthfully, probably getting much more than that, probably more like 60 70% when you include the unreported pay, are making the vast majority of all the revenue in MMA. Now, we do know from the lawsuit disclosure that the top 20 fighters, not top 20%, top 20 individual fighters in a year for the UFC we're getting anywhere around 40 to 50% of all the fighter pay. So a very small group of fighters are getting a large percentage of the money. Okay. Well, I, I sort of interpret, you know, the UFC and specifically what's happened to UFC fighters as not just a cautionary tale, actually, but somewhat emblematic of things that have happened in the U.S. economy for the last few decades, but in a kind of hypercharged steroided up way, you know, possibly in some cases, literally steroided up way, right? The UFC has had a problem with this, but like, it it seems like, it seems like essentially a turbocharged version of the specific pathologies of the U.S. economy. What I don't know is where it's going either for the U.S. economy or for the UFC, because often trends will essentially put in place the conditions for a backlash. And that can be a good thing. In other words, when the trend is bad, the backlash, you know, moves things in the right direction. And in the U.S. economy, it is the case that there has been more emphasis on strong labor markets, on workers having a higher share of the overall income in the last few years. And in the UFC, there's this lawsuit, which has gotten a lot of attention. And I'm wondering if you think it's possible that it too could generate a kind of backlash in the direction of workers actually getting away in. Essentially, if it'll, if it'll generate the kind of backlash for workers in the UFC, the fighters, the athletes, for them to gain 
a higher share of the overall pay and maybe even for the for the lower paid fighters in the UFC to start approaching something like a middle class lifestyle. What do you think? Well, I there is some positive news. Like you, we noted about the antitrust lawsuit, the, the contracts seem to have changed. And so they're not quite as onerous as they were before. So hopefully we see the fighters being able to take advantage and have more leverage and get more. My thinking is in many ways without some massive federal uh, intrusion without them coming in and, 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 you know, either through the antitrust lawsuit, a full win, or through federal law, that the UFC is so far ahead that we could see great improvement for the fighters by perhaps seeing another promotion getting more and more revenue and that promotion paying the fighters a larger share than we ever will the, with the UFC itself paying fighters a higher share of the revenue. Because they have so much money now in contracted revenue there is no incentive for them to actually have to cut the fighters a higher, a bigger slice of the pie. John, tell our listeners where they can find your work. Well, normally uh, my work appears on the website, the electronic karate magazine, Bloody Elbow, uh, which is might be the worst name, but it's, it is what it is, covering boxing and MMA. I'm sorry, I, also, I, I think you mispronounced uh, best just then. Okay, okay that, <laughs> the best. Kid Natal, thank you for that. Uh, also, I have a YouTube channel, which I'm going to be posting more videos to. John Nash, I don't. It's something on on YouTube. John S. Nash, uh, and I potentially I have a book I'm working on with uh, Jacob Debitz, uh, oh, another MMA writer, about about this very subject. Our current working title is Just Bleed. Uh, so we'll see how that that goes. He's, I mean, don't tell anybody. We can cut this. He's doing all the work. So you know, <laughs> just, uh, that's terrific. I, I can't wait for that. And it's such an important topic. Uh, John Nash, thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar. Thanks for having me. And that's our show for this week. We'll post links to John's writing at Bloody Elbow and his other work in the show notes for today's episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. Okay, well, uh, so much for the economics of the UFC. Let's talk real quick about UFC 269, uh, and let's talk about the two title fights. Amanda Nunes, Juliana Pena. What do you think? Does Juliana Pena have any kind of a chance here? I mean, (laughs) at this point, it seems like Amanda Nunes just isn't built to lose. She hasn't lost in almost eight years. Did you know that? I just looked it, it up. She had, no, she, I, I see no chance of her losing. I, there's only two fighters. I, I see a potentially uh, Amanda Nunes having any, or maybe possibly three fighters. Two of them are not in the UFC, and one of them fights in a different weight class, and I only see her having a chance if it was a catchweight bout, which I don't think the UFC will do. Yeah, Amanda Nunes last lost, sorry, a little more than seven years ago, to Kat Zingano in 2014. <laughs> That's a long time without yeah. losing, you know? And then the list of people, of, even if you casually follow MMA, you might know the people that she beat. You know, Ronda Rousey, Cyborg, uh, uh, Holly Holm.
So the the even the the more casual fans, she's beat all those women. Yeah, and 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 convincingly too. I mean, she just she doesn't look like she is at the moment stoppable. Uh, yeah, um, I, even I had my horror filters up for some of those fights. <laughs> so that's happening in the women's bantamweight uh, division in the men's lightweight division. So that's 155 pounds. We've got Charles Oliveira and Dustin Poirier. I'm super excited about this fight. The only problem with this fight is that someone has to lose, and I really like both of these fighters. They're both very likable people. In terms of who I think is going to win, I'm not actually sure. I need to think about it, but what do you think? It's This is a hard pick for me. Um, I'm going to go with Poirier for right now, Dustin. Uh, I, I just, for some reason, I think he he's proven himself a little bit more, and you know he's been around longer, so I'm going to go with him, but... It's sadly, which weird, it's for the lightweight title, but the winner of this, I don't think fans are going to consider the lightweight champion until he, they get one or two more wins because the previous lightweight, Khabib Nurmagomedov, he he retired, and so there's kind of this this vacuum, and I don't think anybody's going to consider the winner of just two randomly selected fighters as the, the lightweight champion now when you still have other fighters out there that, that are viewed as possibly the best in the world. I, I think... The winner of this fight will be widely considered by fans to be the lightweight champ, precisely because it doesn't seem at this point like Khabib is likely to come back. No, I don't think so. But I I still, you had Justin Gaethje's out there who who just beat Chandler, the same guy that Oliveira beat to be the champion. So it's, you know. Yeah, but Poirier beat Gaethje. You know, and so yeah, if, if that was a while ago, yeah, but well, yeah, well, I guess, but, but well, I guess you, you you caught me there. Look at that. Look at that. <laughs> well, I mean, the I don't know who's going to win Poirier versus Oliveira because Oliveira also hasn't lost himself in like four years. You know, he's running quite a streak now, and Poirier has shown himself to be incredibly, you know, incredibly formidable in the last couple of years. Not just the McGregor fights, but you know the Gagey fight was incredible. The Holloway fight was great. He has become, at 155, I think, the fighter that he almost certainly never would have become in his earlier weight class at 145. And I don't know, it seems like this is his time, his year, but that's just a sentimental pick. That doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Oliveira doesn't give a damn if it seems like Poirier's time. Yeah, no, uh, he, so, he shouldn't uh, care. This is, but I think uh, this is a lot of people might take offense to this. I think they're all just, they're keeping the belt warm till Islam Makovet, Makachev gets a chance to oh, be a junior. So? I, I don't know. That guy looked very deadly last fight. Yeah, so. <laughs> he, he, he really has. Um, but at least for now, it, it would be nice for, it would be nice for Poirier to have, the the belt for a little while, not just the interim belt, which he had briefly, but like the actual belt where it's sort of clear that he's the guy because, again, he's, he's such a likable guy and he's the guy who beat Conor McGregor twice inside of, I think, nine months or something. So he'll always have a special place in my heart for that. Um, but I don't know, man. <laughs> Oliver is tough. This one, this one to me is as much of a toss-up as any fight I can remember. And also the fight where I will be super happy for whichever of them wins and incredibly sad for whichever of them loses. Uh, you know, the, to the extent that UFC has like a best face, right? It's this fight. If you think about it, it's sort of the yeah, way I think about it. I agree. Now, now you have me thinking about it. I'm getting sad, and I was trying. I'm already sad enough that I'm watching people beat each other in the head, but now you got me doubly sad because <laughs> a really nice guy might end up losing. Yeah, a really nice guy has to lose this fight. I know they're both, they're both gonna, nice guys. You know, I, I'm just going to invent something about one of them that you know that <laughs> that makes you like them less. Okay, oh, so yeah. our our picks, I think, are cautiously 
Poirier in the men's 155 fight, the lightweight fight, uh, and sort of definitively, you know, Nunez is going to win the fight in the women's bantamweight. Yep. So, yeah. Okay, great. 